good to see you guys. Like John said, my name is Derek. If it's your first time, I just want to say welcome to you. Um, and I, I just kind of want to catch you up. Maybe if you haven't been here in a couple of weeks or if this is your first or your second time, just kind of where we are uh, kind of and tracking along in things. So we are um, kind of coming toward the end of a series that is titled New Year, New You. And in that series, we have, uh, we have looked at a variety of different topics. And this past week, uh, John um, really gave a message. I don't know if, if you were here and you heard it. I don't know if it resonated with you, but man, it really resonated with me because uh, he was talking about something that I think, um, you know, if you if, if if you spend any time at all in church and kind of in a relationship with God and wrestling with God and trying to figure out your purpose in life, then at some point you've come across the topic of trying to figure out, God, what is your will for my life? What, what specifically is your will for me? And um, if you missed the message last week, I really encourage you to check it out um, online on our website. You can, you can download it, podcast it, whatever. Um, but the, in, in a sense, the, the crux of what John was after was that when we're trying to figure out what, what God's will is for our life, one of the great ways that we can kind of narrow down that process is we can take a look at what are the unique gifts and talents and skills that God has given to us. And by pushing into those, by, by developing and strengthening those things, by understanding what our spiritual gifts are, that will help us to get an understanding as to maybe how God has, has wired us up and, and what that means for us and will help us to get better in touch with God's will for our life. Not that that's like you just all you have to do is just figure that one area out. It's, it's much bigger than that. But that will get you a long way. Do, do you know what your skills and your strengths are? Well, that was last week. And today we're going to kind of look at the flip side of the coin. So whereas last week we looked at um, the strengths and the gifts, this week we're going to actually look at um, our weaknesses, our liabilities, our limitations. And um, what I think is so cool about our God, you guys, is that our God doesn't just work in our strengths, in our skills, in our gifts. But our God also can work in the midst of our pain, can work in the midst of our shortcomings, in the midst of our struggles and our setbacks. And um, he can often use those things in amazing ways. And so what we're going to do this morning um, is we are going to take a look at someone in the Bible who had um, quite a few shortcomings, quite a few limitations, and um, we are going to kind of focus on a story in the book of Exodus, uh, chapter 3. It's the second book in your Bible, Genesis, and then Exodus is the next one. So Exodus chapter 3, I encourage you to bring your Bible uh, to church with you. So if you, could, if you could turn there, you also will find the words on the screen and uh, on your outline. And before we jump in, if we could uh, just ask God to help us as we dive in this morning. Uh, God, we are uh, just here this morning, gathered together in your name. Uh, we are going to be uh, looking at your word, and we are asking, Lord, for you to speak to us this morning on a topic that is sensitive, that is personal, that is emotional. We are all coming in. From different places with different experiences, and uh, Lord, we are asking that you would just um, just walk in our midst and uh, and and help us this morning to connect with you and to learn from you in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, 
So Exodus chapter 3, it's a pretty famous Bible story, but let me, um, let me just give you a little bit of background before we jump in. So there is this group of people, this Jewish group of people, they are known as the Israelites. And the Israelites are this, this group, and they are down in slavery in Egypt. So they are under Egyptian rule. They are being beaten, and, and I mean, all sorts of terrible things are happening. They're, they're, they're being oppressed by the Egyptians. And in the midst of all this suffering that is going on, and these are God's chosen people, the Jewish people, okay? And so uh, in the midst of all this, God speaks to one of the Israelites and basically has a message, I'm going to deliver you. And the one that he speaks to is a guy named Moses. You've probably heard that name Moses before. And there's a story about Moses and the burning bush. It's a, it's a, it's a great story. Um, and, and so basically what, what happens is, is Moses is, uh, is out one day and he sees this bush and it's like on fire, but it's not really burning up. It's this weird kind of deal. And, and so he, he walks over to it and he's curious. And basically it is the presence of God in, Moses, in, in his midst. And so uh, God speaks to Moses right there. And uh, I'll just, we're just going to go right, if you like the cliff notes, if you ever didn't want to have to read the whole story, you know, you like the cliff notes and you didn't, didn't like, in school, I'm just going to give you the cliff notes this morning, okay? We're, we're just going, we're just going to zero in on a few verses here. Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 and 10. So we get right down to the heart of the matter. If you like the bottom line, here it is. It says, the Lord said to Moses, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. Verse 10. So now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh, Pharaoh who was the king of the Egyptians. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. So here's God. Okay, Moses, it's time to go. I'm going to deliver you. Here we go. Look at Moses' response in verse 11. Next verse. But Moses said to God, who am I? Hello, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Now, if you know some of the background of the story, there's a good reason why Moses is saying, who am I? Okay, okay. He, he's like, okay, God, so you're, just, you're telling me that I'm supposed to be the one, and I'm going to go in front of Pharaoh, and, and I'm going to set the people free. Well, here's Moses, and he's thinking, well, you know, I just, this is what happened to Moses just a little bit ago. Moses saw an injustice taking place. He saw an Egyptian who was mistreating one of the Hebrew slaves, and so he basically he basically killed this Egyptian and, and, and hit his body. They killed a guy. And then Pharaoh gets wind of it, King Pharaoh, and comes after Moses. He's going to hunt him down and kill him. So Moses is actually on the run. At this point in the story, when Moses sees the burning bush, Moses is on the run. He's fleeing for his life. He's, he's outside the city. That's where he is. So he's saying, God, who am I? I mean, like, if I even go before Pharaoh sees my face, I'm a dead man. Like, who am I? I'm not the guy. I'm not the guy who's get, who needs to go. It's somebody else. So then God, after Moses has this objection in verse 11, I don't have all the verses. I'll just paraphrase it. But basically in verse 12, God says, I'll be with you. He says, dude, I will be with you. Exactly like that. He said, dude, dude, I will be with you. Don't even worry. I've got your back. And then he goes on to say, Moses, this is going to be insane. I am going to send these, these miracles and these wonders, and there's going to be these plagues that are going to come down on the Egyptians, and they're going to be so sorry that they held you in slavery. Like, it's just going to be unbelievable. 
And in fact, this is going to be so good, Moses. Okay, he's trying to pump Moses up. You see, Mo, can you see Moses? He, he's like, come on, who am I? I can't do this. So, so God says, Moses, this is going to be this is going to be incredible. In fact, in fact, you see right at the end of uh, chapter three, God says, I'm going to do so much to this group of people, the Egyptians, that not only are they going to release you and say, okay, you you slaves, go go free. No, no, no. They're going to be so excited to get you out of there that they're actually going to, they're going to send you off with all kinds of gifts and supplies. And they're just going to, please, just go. And I will make you favorably disposed with them. And so, um, I mean, this is just amazing, right? I mean, God, what, what more can God do? God's just saying, I'm just laying it all out for you, Moses. Here is how it's going to go down. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to do all this stuff. You've got nothing to worry about. And then uh, Moses' next response in Exodus 4.1, and you just have to love this interchange. If you've ever wrestled with God about something, if you've ever kind of felt like you've had a little bit of a back-and-forth dialogue with God where you're like, oh, I'm just not sure, and you're going back and forth, this is exactly what Moses is doing. So, so God's just given this great reassurance, and then Moses says in, in 4.1, this is with God. What if they don't believe me? Or what if they don't listen to me? And what if they say, the Lord didn't appear to you? And so now actually what Moses is shifting his focus, and he's talking about, the, the Israelites, he's talking about all of his people, the elders and all the other folks that he's got to try and like describe. Here's the plan. Here's what God said to me. So here we see Moses and he has no confidence whatsoever. Okay? God has appeared to him in this miraculous way. God has assured him, I'll be with you. I'm going to do all these amazing signs and wonders and do all this stuff for you. And still, this is a guy who says, I, I have no confidence. This, this, this is not going to happen. They're not going to listen to me. And so then God says, okay, Moses, you need some more. All right, you've got that stick in your hand, that staff. He says, throw that thing down. Moses throws it down. You guys know what happens, right? You remember? What's it turn into? A snake. It turns into a snake. Moses, like, runs off. He freaks out. This guy, this guy is a mess, you guys. You know, he's a total mess. God says, go back over and pick up the snake, touch the snake. It turns back into a staff. He says, okay, now, Moses, I want you to reach your hand into your coat pocket. So Moses reaches it in, takes it out, and boom, it's, it's white, it's leprous. He's got leprosy on his hands, like, ah! So God says, okay, put it back in, take it out, and, and then his hand is restored again. And so God is, God is showing Moses, he's like, look, how much more can I give you? How much more can I reassure you? How much more can I bolster your confidence that I'm choosing you, I'm going before you, I'm going to be with you, we, you know, I'm going to deliver you. Right? Just go. They're going to believe. Look at Moses next in verse 10. Moses said to the Lord, Oh, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past or since you've spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. So now Moses is saying, Okay, God, well, that's great, and you're going to be with me and I'll do all this stuff, but, but I, I can't be the guy to deliver your message. I'm not going to be that guy. I... I'm slow of speech and tongue. And scholars have debated, what did that mean? Does that, does that mean that Moses had a stuttering problem? Did he have a speech impediment? What exactly was going on with Moses in that? And we'll never, I think, fully solve that debate. But the bottom line is there was something going on to where Moses felt like he couldn't talk right here. Okay, so he's listing every excuse in the book at this point. Clearly, he does not want to, I can't, I can't even, I can't even speak right. Next verse, God comes back. The Lord said to him, 
Moses, who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go. I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. And for me, it's almost like that just is kind of, it's, it's almost like you feel this sense of God's having the final word right here, okay? He's like, come on, I, I, I made you, I gave you that mouth, I'm going to make this thing work, I'm going to shut down all your excuses, now go. And it, it, it just feels for me like that's where the story should just, and it should then say, and Moses was silent, and Moses went. That's just kind of how I feel like, you know, when God just says, okay, now go. That's it, I told you again, you know, and I were, were starting to tread on a little shaky ground. And instead of it being over right there, it says verse 13. And, and this is just where, where I, Moses just becomes like my boy right here. Because, I mean, really, I just relate to Moses. So, because it says, you know, so here's God. Now go. I gave your mouth, just go. But Moses said, oh, Lord, please just send someone else to do it. Yeah, I don't know if you can relate to that, but, man, that's, that's a great line. So here is a guy. Okay, think, think about this for a minute. You have a people that have been enslaved in Egypt, a group of people with no real good leadership in place, okay? This is kind of this disorganized group, and God's going to raise up a leader. God's going to raise up a leader who's basically, you know, going to stir this whole, these whole people up, get them all riled up. They're going to be freed from slavery, and then they're going to be able to, to kind of band together and stay excited and energized enough to, to go all through the wilderness and to eventually get to the promised land, okay? Why in the world does God choose Moses? This doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, I'm thinking, you know, God's looking for someone that when he says, okay, this is what we're going to do, it's going to be amazing, and I'm going to be with you, and we're going to stir this up, and, and all this is going to happen. You know, God's looking for that leader, you know, someone who's just like, he, and you've got a friend like this, Okay. Who, as soon as someone says, come on, we're going to do this thing, it's going to be cool, they're just like, yeah, let's go, come on. Moses is like the exact opposite of that guy. Moses is still sitting on the couch saying, no, you, not me, it can't be me, I am not your guy, over and over and over. No matter what God says, no matter what signs God gives, Moses will not be reassured. So why, why does God choose Moses? The way it hits me is that the reason that God chooses Moses is because he wants to be so clear with his people. Okay? He wants them to know who delivered them. So if he raised up some, some just incredible, brilliant leader who was the most eloquent speaker, who could motivate an entire crowd, who everyone would just kill to follow this guy, Okay, if he if he raised up a leader like that, then maybe they could come to think, yeah, well, man, you know, Moses, remember how great Moses was? Remember what a great speaker Moses was? Remember, remember how Moses, I mean, Moses came up with that game plan, remember that? And Moses, when we were really down, he gave us the pep talks, you know, and Moses was so smart, you know, he used his survival skills, and he found that water, and he did that. You know, God, God wants no mistaking here. This and, and, and just so we're all clear, this isn't the only story in the Bible like this. Over and over and over again, in this book, God chooses people, unlikely heroes, unlikely people with, with weaknesses and liabilities and limitations and hang-ups and all kinds of mess-ups, and he picks them to show that he can work in anyone. 
and he doesn't want there to be any mistaking that this is not a book of Moses' glory. This is not a book to show how great Moses is. Amen? This is a book to show how great our God is. So over and over we see this guy, Moses, and we realize there was no way if Moses was left on his own to his own devices, he's not leading anyone. He's not even leading himself. So this, the, the whole purpose why God chose Moses was to communicate that I, it's me, it's, it's, it's God in Moses that is working for the deliverance of the people. This is the story of God's greatness and God's glory working in all sorts of unlikely situations. If you guys could, I'm going to shift gears a little bit, and uh, I'm going to ask if you would welcome, help me welcome Jay Mayhew to the stage. She's going to share a little bit of her story with us. Good morning. Am I on? Can you hear? Okay, good. Um, so if you've been attending Grace for a while, you might have heard a testimony I gave a few years ago during a sermon called, I Hate Church, because it's all about condemnation. I spoke that day about being diagnosed with anorexia at age 16, and the callous way my church in Illinois responded to it, calling me prideful and telling me that I was sinning for being too wrapped up in my appearance. Giving my testimony that Sunday was easy, because the focus was on the church's issues, on its failures. But this Sunday is really difficult for me because I want to focus on another issue, my issue, one that I've been struggling with for 10 years and one that I have never heard discussed in a church. I have an eating disorder. It's not something I left behind me in my teen years. It's not something I outgrew in college. And it's not something that most of you would realize just by looking at me. But every day, I struggle with the really basic task of putting food in my mouth. Some days I do well. Some days I do some pretty stupid things. And most days, I identify more with my disorder than I do with being a Christian or a daughter or a friend. I could stand up here and educate you on what an eating disorder is, how it's a combination of a mental disease and an addiction, and that's part of why they're so misunderstood. But those of you who I truly want to reach with this, you already know. And for everyone who hasn't personally battled an eating disorder, I'll just say this. At its core, an ED is not about the weight. If the goal were just to look good, we'd stop before we were emaciated. And if food were just about nutrients, we'd all be hunters and gatherers, and no one would overeat. But that's not how it is. People use food as a way to medicate emotions, overeating when we're depressed, not eating when we're upset. An eating disorder just takes it a step farther, giving some illusion of control over emotions that we can't deal with. It's avoidance. But let's be honest for a second, just be really truthful. We all have an avoidance problem, a worship problem, really. We all have things in our lives that we elevate to God's status so that we don't have to deal with emotions or situations that are just too painful to work through. Some people drown that pain or shame in alcohol, in food, in television, in friendships, relationships. I can't tell you why my escape was an eating disorder, but I can tell you that I was an only child, a military child. I had an A-type personality, I thrived on positive attention, and I took the word perfectionist to some sick new extreme. I was well-behaved. I was an academically advanced 15-year-old with absolutely no fashion sense or concern for my appearance, but with an overwhelming desire to impress, to exceed expectations. Then shortly before my 16th birthday, I started college, and suddenly my weight started to matter. Looking back on it, I realized I was just overwhelmed, not by the schoolwork, but by the social relationships, the college atmosphere, 
the expectations people were putting on me to succeed in life. I was intimidated and I overcompensated for it by taking control of the only thing in my life that was mine, my weight. I started working out and eating right and dressing in clothes that my mother hadn't picked for me out of a Land's End catalog. And slowly, the way people treated me started to change. The boys got nicer. Women complimented my figure. The boys got nicer. It was encouraging. It was flattering. For the first time in my life, I didn't have to sound smart or sing a perfect aria to have people treat me like something special. I was effortlessly impressive, or so I like to believe. But really quickly, the dieting slid from a get-healthy venture to an obsession. My friends started to call me the girl who didn't eat, and for some bizarre reason, I actually tried to live up to that, to be so impressive that I didn't even need food, like I was above that basic need. And slowly, my healthy food rules became a bizarre sort of religion, one filled with punishments and penances and absolutely no forgiveness for mistakes. With every workout, my world was narrowing down to focus on one thing, just getting comfortable in my own skin, because the fear of fat, of failure, was suffocating. The closest thing I can relate that mindset to is the dread a woman might feel if she has to get into a bikini right after Christmas, or in July, um, being a little bit bigger than she wants to be, feeling vulnerable and exposed, like everyone around her is judging her or taking pictures to post on some horrible blog feeling so uncomfortable in her own body that she just wants to hide from the world until she can fix it. Logically, I knew my weight was not the center of everyone else's world, but I also felt like people couldn't help but judge me because I was so disgusting. <laughs> Simultaneously, my other insecurities started to become pronounced. Shame was just blanketing every aspect of my life, and nothing I ever did was right or good enough. I couldn't stop. <laughs> I remember a day in 2001 going to class and having a girl say, wow, I wish I could be that thin. What's your secret? And I laughed and I smiled. And then I went home to an empty house with a fully stocked kitchen. And I sat in the middle of it and I just cried. That really ugly crying that comes from the deepest part of you. I was desperately hungry. Everything hurt. My body was shutting down and I was alone. My family was angry with me for the stress I was causing. I'd alienated myself from my friends and my heart was starting to do scary things, like stop beating and then flutter in my chest. I'm sure that I prayed for help, but nothing changed. So eventually I stopped praying. Because when nothing changes, you go from hopeful to hopeless to angry. I was really starting to get angry. The next eight years of my life played out along similar lines. Only I started to find new ways to self-medicate my issues, sliding back and forth between anorexia and bulimia, taking on some new bad habits, remaining antisocial as my weight roller coastered. Maybe church would have been a good alternative to my ways of dealing, but I was struggling. I couldn't go and pretend to be that normal, I've got my life in normal order Christian that everyone expected to see, so I stayed away. Plus, the few times my parents dragged me, no one knew what to say to me. They either ignored the very visible problem or quoted me some platitude like, well, God made you, so you're perfect. Most unhelpful comment ever, because they had completely missed the point. They were focusing on the outside, on my appearance when the eating disorder was really about the mess I was dealing with on the inside, the pain I wanted someone to validate, to notice. Instead, they focused on the symptoms, not the sickness. But that comment, God made you so you're perfect, is one I've heard many times. And to be honest, I found it almost laughable. I'd been struggling to stay alive in the perfect body God had given me for years. First, it was the struggle to physically not die. Then was the mental struggle of wishing I died because anything would have been preferable to living with the mind of an anorexic in a body that was unimpressively, pathetically average, or fat. 
And while I've gotten a lot of my life right with God since then, this is one area where I've, I've just felt like he got it wrong. He got me wrong. And then a few months ago, I was sitting here at Grace, um, listening to Derek give a sermon, which I'm sure was fabulous and full of wonderful British insights. But I didn't hear two words because I just started obsessing on this idea of why. Why didn't God make me right? Why do I have to live with this crazy, misunderstood, debilitating disorder? Why won't he fix it? Just why? And I don't get many of those God moments, those little, like, voice-in-your-ear realizations. But I think maybe God was getting a little tired of my constant questions because he took a moment in that service to whisper the most unexpected thing to me. What if I didn't mess up? I didn't know what to make of that. I still don't know what to make of that. After a decade of calorie counting and hospital trips and dysfunctional eating, I am wrestling with the idea that my life, eating disorder included, isn't a mistake, that I'm not fundamentally flawed. Nine years ago, a church in Illinois told me that my eating disorder was a result of my own sin, that if my life were right with God, he wouldn't let me suffer. They were wrong. 2 Corinthians 4.11 says, For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal bodies. The idea that Christ uses our struggles to reveal himself is mind-blowing to me. The idea that God not only recognizes our pain, but that he's orchestrated the purpose for it, that's strangely comforting. I don't know what purpose my eating disorder serves, what any of our eating disorders serve. I don't know why we struggle with sickness, violence, addiction, pain. But I'm at a point where I have to believe that there is an eternal purpose for the hardships of this life. I have to believe it, or my whole faith would come crashing down. Because a loving father would not let his children suffer without a purpose. In John 11, when Lazarus becomes ill, Jesus doesn't rush to Bethany to heal him. Instead, he allows Lazarus to die, and for two days, allows Mary and Martha to brokenheartedly mourn the loss of their brother. But when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, we read that many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. God had a purpose for Mary and Martha's pain. I don't know what purpose my eating disorder serves, but I'm choosing to trust that there's a reason for my struggle. That one day in heaven, when I'm no longer scared of a cookie, and I can sit down and eat without having a panic attack, that God will tell me why. That God will tell all of us why. This song is I Will Trust You by Stephen Curtis Chapman. Getting ready for today was an emotional ringer for me. Um, for every one answer I think I have, I have a thousand more questions. And I got frustrated and angry and upset. I just, I was everywhere with this. And this song just, it kept me centered that I just need to trust. And it, it was peaceful for me. And so I wanted to share that today. close my eyes and I don't want to open them again until I'm standing on the other side I don't even want to be right now I 
don't want to think another thought and I don't want to feel this pain I feel right now pain is all I've got it feels like it's all I've got but I know it's not no I know you're all I've got and I will trust you trust you trust you God I will even when I don't understand even then I will say again you are my God and I will trust you God I'm longing for the day you come when this cloudy glass I'm looking through shattered in a million pieces and finally I can just see you oh God you know I believe it's true I know I will see you but until the day I do I will trust you trust you trust you God I will even when I don't understand even then I trust you and with every breath I take and for every day that breaks I will trust you I will trust you and when nothing is making sense even then I'll say again God I trust you I will trust you I know your heart is good love is strong I know your plans for me are much better than my own so I will trust you trust you trust you God I will even when I can't see the end I will trust you trust you, God, I will, even when I don't understand, even then I will say again, I will trust you, I will trust you, I will, I know your heart is good, your love is strong, your plans for me are better than my own, yeah, your heart is good. Your love is strong, your plans for me are better than my own, and I trust you, you are my God, and I will trust you. step meetings that you might have heard about if you've been coming to Grace for any length of time or you have an opportunity, we invite everyone at Grace to to, uh, set up a time to meet one-on-one with a a staff member for about an hour and just talk about uh, next steps in your relationship with God. 
and, uh, and so we were sitting down a number of months ago, and, uh, and you were sharing your story with me, Jay, and um, in the midst of you sharing about your struggle the last few years or so, um, and educating me, I was trying to get up to speed, um, it became pretty clear to me that uh, this was something that we needed to uh, talk about here at, at Grace, that, uh, that life isn't always great and easy, and life is hard, and um, that this is something, actually, you were sharing some statistics with me that were just blowing my mind um, about how many um, women struggle, not just women, but men as well, but um, could you just share maybe just one of those that was, I can't even remember <laughs> Um, that 50% of fourth graders have already dieted multiple times and feel better about themselves when they are on diets. It's a very scary statistic given that the number one leading indicator of an eating disorder is chronic dieting and the ages are starting younger and younger and it has broken my heart that there is not a compassionate response from the church to this problem. So uh, we just felt like we needed to come up here and, and talk about this and um, one of the things that you were sharing with me as we were talking in that next step was, okay, well, where do you, where do you feel like God's leading you? And uh, what might God be doing in the midst of all this? And, and you had mentioned that you would have loved to have been attending a church years ago where this was talked about and there were people getting together not to judge you and condemn you and to tell you you needed to eat more, but just to love you and support you. And so... Um, We're going to start a Bible study. It's going to be a 10-week study based on this book, Get Out of That Pit by Beth Moore. It is not eating disorder specific. It's a book about dealing with addiction and recovery, and it could, it could be anything from depression to alcohol to food. And it's going to be for women who have struggled with disordered eating, and we're going to get together, and we're going to review the discussion questions, and we're going to talk about grace and love and shoes. Always shoes. No, we're not going to talk calories, weight, no numbers. Um, there's just going to be shoes in that book. Excellent, excellent. You've got to have the shoes in there. Always. That's important. Okay. Um, and you had just mentioned that, uh, I mean, when we met, Jay had so many books that she had, like, highlighted. And she was like, look at how terrible this is. I was like, oh, my goodness. I couldn't believe some of the stuff that was being said and where blame was being placed. You really liked this book. What is it about this book that's a little bit different? I liked this book because it it didn't deny that life is hard. It didn't deny that God isn't always going to fix it. What it said is, let's try to get to know God through it and try to understand why we're dealing with what we deal with. And it was honest and it was real, but it had compassion. So many of the books I looked at were just blame, pointing fingers. And that's, that's not helpful when someone is sick. That's, that's turns them away from the church. It turned me away from the church. Mm. So... Um Another thing I think is important to know is that this isn't a book about, this, this isn't eating disorder specific. This is more just if you're struggling and you're, you're needing some help, you're looking for God's deliverance, right? So, so this could be, could this be for men, women? Um, this could be for anyone. It's not gender specific. It's not problem specific. Um, it's just about getting out of situations that feel hopeless, that maybe you've been in for so long that you just can't even picture being without. Um, it's, it's about 
finding light at the end of the tunnel where you don't think one exists. And it's a very biblical uh, base. Uh, so if, if you're here today and you are feeling like, man, I, I've got some pits in my life. I, I have some, some struggles, some things that, that I just feel like, gosh, I'm so tired of trying to climb out on my own power. This is really a book about have you really tried to tap into what the Bible says about um, about God's help in those things? And not that it's going to be easy, <laughs> but um, but this is a great resource. And so uh, Jennifer just spoke so highly of it for um, that that we actually ordered a hundred copies of this book, and we have them available as you head out today. You'll see a table, and uh, we're just asking you to help us cover our costs. We had paid about ten dollars for them, so we're just asking if you could help us with that. Um, but feel free to, to grab one of those books um, if you'd like to, just to kind of have it, just to read through it, work through it. Um, and if you're here and you have been struggled, uh, struggling in some way with disordered eating, um, or maybe you just have a question for Jay or you wanted to say something to Jay, um, Jay and I are going to be in the art room, which is the first room uh, as you head down the hall on the right-hand side before you even make the turn in the hallway. Uh, we'll be right in there, and uh, we just would love to have you. Um, there's also information at the bottom of the bulletin where you can see info about the group, and there's an email address we set up for Jay. You can, very com uh, in confidence, you can you can reach out to her, and uh, we just really encourage you to do that. And uh, so before I let Jay sit down, I just want to say on behalf of all of us, thank you for having the courage to share like this. That it is incredible. Um, with, with with all that you've been through and and all the judgment and condemnation that churches have have kind of been a part of doling out to you to be to put yourself out here and to make yourself vulnerable. Um, I just speak on behalf of everyone that we just really love you. Thank you. And uh, yeah, I'm coming. So if you guys would just uh, bow your heads with me. Lord, we thank you for um, safe places where we can come and we can talk about tough stuff. We thank you for Jay. We thank you for um, for just giving her the words to speak, giving her the courage to uh, to stand up here and put herself out here for for all of us, God, um, so that we might be a little bit more open to share our struggles and to admit when we need help. And um, Lord, I just pray for particularly for for those who are listening right now who particularly resonate with what Jay just shared. I just pray, Lord, that you would help each person to figure out, Lord, how to get out of their pits in the way that you have set for them. Okay? So, uh, just got uh, two quick things uh, before we um, before we close out the service this morning. And uh, it's basically, I just want to make sure that we are just fundamentally clear on kind of a theological level about something, and that is um, that I, I just want to make sure that from what you heard in this service and from what you heard in, uh, in Jade's testimony, which is her story, her story of how God has been, has, has kind of showed up in the midst of her pain, I want to make sure that we're clear on this, that we are not in any way, shape, or form saying that God somehow is the cause of all of our pain or suffering, that whatever that thing is for you, whatever that that, that horrific thing that's happened to you, whatever, you know, that, that thing that you think about that's just been so painful in your life,
life, that the scars that you have to bear, that, that God has somehow looked down and said, yeah, that's my will. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cause that to happen. I, I really don't believe that you can make a good case in Scripture for that, start to finish. But what we are saying, and what the Bible is very clear about when it comes to our pain and our suffering, is this. And the first thing is that God understands our pain. God understands our pain. Look at Hebrews 2.18. It says, and this is talking about Jesus Christ. It says, since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested. Now, for me, that is just such a cool aspect of the Christian faith. If you're here and you believe that Jesus came down to this earth, that God came down, took on human flesh as a man, Jesus Christ, and died for you. If you if you believe that, then the ramifications of that are pretty simple in the sense that God wasn't just content to kind of dwell up in the heavens somewhere and looks down on you and sees your misery and sees your darkest days and says, oh, that's terrible, that's my child down there. No, God, if God actually walked this earth as a human being, he, he went through suffering and testing and all sorts of trials and tribulations. He gets it in a way that we can't even fully grasp. God is able to fully empathize with us and relate to us. And no, that doesn't take the pain away. That doesn't necessarily, for me, sometimes even make it any easier. But, but when in those moments where I can really focus and meditate on this, it's like I can say, okay, well, at least, God, I, I, I just choose to believe that you really understand what I'm going through. You're fully with me in this. Because you, you experience life as we experience it. So that's the first one, is that God understands our pain. He knows our pain. And the second one is that God can work in it and through it. He can work in it and through it. Romans 8.28, I've shared before, this is my favorite verse in the Bible, so you can't get mad at me for sharing it too many times because it's my favorite. So I get to, this is my license, you know. So Romans 8.28, the reason it's my favorite is because the promise that it makes to us. God says to us, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. We've been called according to his purpose. That verse does not say, and we know that in, you know, some of those things, or sometimes God works those things out. No, 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 no. It doesn't say, and we know that in most things, it says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Even in those things that we can't possibly attempt to understand. I couldn't possibly, when Jay and I sat together in our next step meeting, I couldn't possibly try and give her a reason why why she was suffering right now. Why, why, why she struggles with these things. I couldn't. But, but we cling to this hope. That somehow, some way, maybe not even on this side of heaven, maybe it's, it's, it's not going to be until that next life, that we're going to understand. But I choose to cling to this idea. I'm going to trust that somehow, someway, God is going to use, is going to work, is going to redeem everything. He can. So he understands our pain, and he can redeem it. He can work in it. He can work through it. It's tough. It's tough. So uh, what I think the best thing we can do now is just, uh, if we could bow our heads, and uh, we're just going to kind of ask God to, to help us close this service.
Lord, um, there in this room is a tremendous amount of pain and trial and suffering. God, some of us are suffering right now. We are in the midst of a tremendous struggle right now. Between me and you are hard struggles. Some of us have cried out so many times, we don't even cry that anymore. We've, we've given up even believing that, that you could do anything. Others of us, God, uh, the pain was in the past, and we've kind of tried to, tried to medicate it. We've tried to avoid it. We've tried to mask it. We've tried to run from it. We've tried to pretend like it's not there. It's not inside of us, God. And uh, there are some of us who, Lord, with your anointing, healing touch, we, we need your help to kind of to be healed. To, uh, as, as Jay mentioned, to, to stop trying to run away from it and avoid it, but to, to kind of push into it and, and to try and figure out where you are in the midst of it and how you can help us in the midst of it. Lord, I, I don't know what that looks like. I have no clue. But Lord, help us to have the faith, to trust that you love us, that you want the best for us, we're your children, and God, that you know our pain, because you felt it firsthand, and that somehow, some way, you're working in and through us, and there's some crazy, mind-blowing thing that you're doing. We may never understand, but Lord, just help us to trust you in it. And that's all we have, God, just help us to trust you in it. for us. What we're going to do now is as we dismiss, I'm going to invite the prayer team to come forward. If you're here this morning and this service has, has touched you in some way and you would just like to come up and have a chance just to have some, some quiet prayer, just come up to the front. And if you would like to talk to Jay, uh, Jay and I will be in the art room just around the corner here uh, so you can feel free to come and visit with us. Thank you. God bless you. Take care. trust you.